0: All right. All right. Galatians chapter three. I may just go quickly through this. I asked my I was talking to my wife and I thought, you know, I'm feeling really sleepy. And she says, you want a Red Bull? I go, you know, yeah, why not? Well, guess what? She gave me a Red Bull. I just drank a little bit ago. And went, oh, I don't know if I was a good idea. So anyway, I'm a little alert. All right. Galatians chapter three. He says, oh, foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And we're going to as we go through the passage, you're going to hear this over and over again. He's trying to make a point. He says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying in you, all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. In this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritances of the law It is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions to the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law." But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. All right, now. As we venture into this third chapter of Galatians, it would be wise for us to consider the last chapter and the last verse. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. You know, if you ask the average non-Christian what their thoughts are regarding those who go to heaven versus those who go to hell, they will tell you something along the lines of, well... Bad people go to hell. Good people go to heaven. And of course, they're going to heaven because, you know, they're nowhere near the depravity of Mussolini or Hitler, right? Do you notice whenever they respond, they always avoid the sin issue? They never address the sin issue. Sin is never mentioned. And certainly Jesus is almost never mentioned at all. Therefore, in our example... Jesus died in vain. He died for nothing because, of course, good people go to heaven. Yet the Bible tells us over and over again that all have fallen short of the glory of God. That all of man's efforts, all our good deeds are like menstrual, filthy rags. If you endeavor to live a life where the emphasis is the external, you know, the the stuff that people see, you know, we can dress ourselves up really nice and pretty and, and we put on this presentation when we go to church or wherever we're at, if that is your emphasis, well, guess what? It doesn't matter to God. He sees everything. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 18, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies chapter 5 verse 27 you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not commit adultery but i say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery where his heart jesus was saying it's not the stuff on the outside that that matters you know that the stuff that we could see it's the stuff that's going on inside in the heart it's a heart issue and that's the problema. Now, if I can generate a good standing before God through all my efforts, if I did all the good works, all the good deeds, then Christ died in vain. Why do I need Christ? Then he went to the cross for nothing. But in fact, righteousness comes by faith, by trusting that God had come up with a plan that he could be both just and yet still be the justifier of the ungodly. That's you and me. That God would come up with a plan whereby He would take sinners, again like you and me, and save us by His grace. Make us justified. You know what that word is? Justified? To make us just as if we had never sinned. That's amazing to me. That God can do that. He says, I can make you as if you had never sinned. And yet, that's kind of a, a... a thought that kind of floats in the in the air sometimes we don 't put a lot of thought behind that, and yet he would still be free from blame. he would still be righteous, he would still be holy, even though he 's allowing sinners saved by grace to enter his kingdom and into his presence. What a plan and of course he did that through what the sacrifice of his son, who was holy and spotless. And then, of course, Christ, not deserving of death, giving Himself to death, in His death purchases purchases a people that He doesn't really need for Himself. He doesn't need you and me, but He purchases us. And then by faith, we have been able to apply that to our own lives for our benefit. And so here, Paul challenges them, and he starts to make his point. And he says here in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you he, he's saying you who, who are unwise and that's what the word means without understanding someone who's got an empty head how can, how did you get to this place oh foolish galatians how would you like to receive a letter like that oh fernando you're so unwise it's insulting almost isn't it but i tell you what grabs your attention why is he saying this and he says, Who has bewitched you? Who has cast this spell on you? Notice whom he was clearly portrayed openly, plainly. And the word is prographo, it means to portray before the eyes, to display, to present openly. In other words, as it pertains to the gospel of Christ, you couldn't have been given a more clear picture. And this is the context of the legalist who had come in. And you know what they were doing? They were sabotaging the liberties that we find ourselves in Christ. Christ had been clearly portrayed in such a way that even a child can come to Christ. A murderer can come to Christ. A drunkard can come to Christ. Even an atheist. An atheist can come to Christ because he can reason as he listens to the gospel. and, And God, by his Holy Spirit, begins to work in his heart. And he opens their eyes. I don't know if you notice about the gospel, but there is no special message for, for the drunkard or some special method that we share with the rich. We don't cater the gospel to anybody. It's one message. And it's, a, it's God's message. And he makes it very simple. Yet for any of us who have walked any, for any length of time, we're astounded, aren't we, at the depth of the message of the cross. It is a power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. As Romans 1.16 tells us. And yet Christian bookstores. Are pushing books with you know. Secret codes of the Bible. As if there's a deeper message hidden in the Bible. And that's the hook. That's the hook. We all just look at that. Wow. Is there something in that book that maybe I'm missing. You know, there, here's the author. He has spent years in research and he's traveled the world abroad and all this could be yours for 1995. The funny thing is whatever they reveal is not something new. It may, it may be something new to you, but it's not new. You know, you take, for example, Rick Warren's uh, book, uh, The Daniel Diet. What did it break down to? It broke down to a diet mainly made up of vegetables because when Daniel was given food, he says, you know, I'm not going to take the king's meat. And they said, okay, great. Oh, go ahead, eat the vegetables. And what happened? They go back to Daniel and him and his buddies or countenance has changed and they look healthy. And so Rick Warren pens this book and people flock to get this book. Crazy. Crazy. Rick Warren sensationalizes it and people just gobble it up. And the church is always in danger of being exploited by men who are looking for authority, power, or money. And again, our backdrop is these Judaizers have crept in looking for authority, trying to manipulate the Gentiles into observing the law, that the observance of the law would complete their Christianity. And that's our, that's our, our weakness. That's our, our, our tendency is, you know, if there's something else I need to add, then... That makes me just a little bit better than the next person. He says again, "O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? That's the message. He's crucified. He says Christ was simply presented before you, and the truth was clearly portrayed before you. He says what's wrong with you? Why aren't you thinking? Why are you being foolish? Who's beguiling you spiritually to make you disobedient to the truth? And look, many of us when we first get saved, we, we get tripped up, don't we? We get saved, everything is clear for the first time, and we're like that baby horse, right? We're trying to we're trying to wean, we're, we're trying to walk. And we begin to go to church for the first time. I remember when I went to church for the first time. I couldn't believe it. Um, I remember when I first got saved. I mean, my mind was blown. You know, how in the world? I remember that sitting in church. How in the world did I end up in here? How did I end up here? One weekend I was getting smashed in the clubs. The next I'm sitting in church. And I couldn't believe that there was a God in heaven. The God of the Bible. He says he loved me. And actually wanted to have a relationship with me. I told my friends that you know I'm a Christian now (laughs) and they all thought I smoked the big one and what was really telling was when I told them when I told my friends friends who were my blood brothers since we were kids they all disappeared within one week all gone I thought okay God these folks are really weren't really my friends But I noticed one thing you accepted me for who I was. And for the first time in my life, I didn't feel like I had to act a certain way. I was free to start a new life. I had a new beginning. I remember getting up that Sunday morning. I was excited to go to church. Excited to go to what church? I'm 21 years old. I just turned 21 I thought, man, when you, hit, you guys know, you turn 21, I get to do all kinds of things. I'm sitting in church. And there I was, sitting in the sanctuary, seeing people worship for the first time. I'm going, man, this is odd. Am I really supposed to be here? And I'm seeing them worship, I'm thinking, you know what? Maybe I should be worshiping too. I don't know the words, but I'll, I'll hum around, okay? Yeah, I'm worshiping. And of course, lifting my hands for the first time was weird. You guys know that. And then we get to a place where you know we're hmm, we're mature, right? We're mature in the Lord. We're no longer just loving everybody. We're just discerning things about them. We become spiritual. And you arrive at church to find someone sitting in your seat. What's he doing in my chair? Does he know who I am? You guys laugh because you know it's true. you go, he used to sit on the other side of the aisle. What's he doing on this side of the aisle? Right? Or that guy over there. He's annoying me. Gosh. Look at this. Even the way his gestures, the way he stands. I mean, he's annoying. I remember one time, there was a guy here. I may have shared this with you before. There was a guy who sat in a fellowship. I remember every week he came in. I go, man, that guy just annoys me. And it was the second time, the only other time that the Lord spoke to me, he says, But I love him. I was floored. I was floored. There's that young lady who stands up and worships the same way. Man, that particular tune comes on, and there she goes, man. Just she's going on. It becomes annoying. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? We're in a church for a while and Somehow we take for granted all of God's blessings. Well, guess what? When you go to eternity, you're going to see those people. All these people you see in the sanctuary, they're going to look a little bit better and sing a little bit better. Okay? So get used to it. And then some of us go on a spiritual expedition, right? There is the overemphasis of the Holy Spirit rather than the true worship of God. Then there's the overemphasis of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There's a focus on tongues. And you go, I got to have that gift. That person has it. I need to have that gift, right? Rather than waiting and seeing how the Lord is going to gift you. Then there's the overemphasis of whether you're a Calvinist or an and you're trying to figure out your theology. And we go on these expeditions hoping, hoping to become more spiritually enlightened than the next person. It's keeping up with the Joneses. It's a type of mentality that, that creeps into the church, and it fleshes itself out into legalism, and for some reason, our flesh likes it. It likes to take hold of the deeper spiritual things so that we can just look down on that person a little bit. we can look down on those on those people because you know after all, they're not as versed as we are. We all love it, don't we? We all love to be perceived to be a little bit better for the next person. Then after all that, we come full circle. If you walk with the Lord for any length of time, you come full circle and we're back to the cross. <laughs> the simplicity of the gospel. Now, all of us have the potential. And, you know, we're, we're not exactly sinning. and We're not backslidden. But we can become self-righteous and legalistic. Let me just key you on something. Satan doesn't care. He doesn't, it doesn't matter to them. He'll use this for his advantage. And that's our context that's set before us. He says here, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, therefore, he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of law or by the hearing of faith? Now, he's going to underscore our relationship to the spirit, the spirit of God. Paul mentions the spirit 18 times in the book of Galatians. The first time it's mentioned, it's in this chapter. And he begins to do so, and he begins to argue against the benefits of the simplicity found in Christ versus the legalism which they found themselves ensnared in. So he's going to illustrate to the Galatians our relationship with the Spirit in that kind of arena, if you will. And other interesting key terms that you may want to note, you'll find the, the word law 32 times. You'll find the word faith 19 times. And promise nine times, and between chapter this chapter and chapter four, Paul is going to argue the promises of God and faith versus the law. He starts with their salvation. They heard his preaching, they received Christ, and turned from idolatry and embraced the one living God. And he says, "This is what I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law?" Or by the hearing of faith? Did you earn the Spirit? Or was it a gift? So when you were saved, when, when Christ first came into your heart, when you were placed into the body of Christ, did that happen by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And by the way, that holds true in respect as to how, how we relate to the Holy Spirit as believers. You know, in Luke's Gospel, we're told, how much more will the Father give the Spirit to those who ask. How much more? He says to ask. Is it through the observance of the law? Or the hearing of faith? You know Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. Not to be drunk with wine. Which is dissipation. He says but be ye filled with the spirit. It's in the emphatic. It says be being filled with the spirit. Well how does that occur? Does it occur through the observance of the law? Or the hearing of faith? Again, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of law or the hearing of faith? Now, what were they doing? I mean, what is Paul arguing here? Well, again, in the context, they were circumcising themselves. They were keeping dietary laws. These Judaizers happened to approach these young Gentile believers and suggested if you wanted to be a complete believer... They ought to circumcise themselves as they had and as they needed to to change their diet as well. They had to ditch the pork chops, the ham sandwich, the pozole. Okay, they could no longer have it. Now, if someone said, you know, approach me today say, said, hey, uh, you circumcised yourself? Why do I want to tell you? You see, but that was going on. These guys were saying, hey, listen, you're, you're coming to church now and... You know what? You need to be a complete believer. Us Jews, you know, we circumcise. You need to do the same thing. What? Really? You sure? Yeah, go take care of it. Are you crazy? But that's what was going on. you eating that pork chop? You know what? That's not a good thing. Let me show you in the Old Testament. What's, you can't do that. They were laying a heavy trip. They were laying a heavy trip. And Paul says again, Look, having begun in the Spirit... Do you think you're going to be made perfect through circumcision by keeping dietary laws, by going back and trying to observe the law as a measure to relate with God? You know, and he says here in verse four, have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, you know, in Acts chapter 14, verses two and five, it tells us how the Jews, they were pursuing Paul around Iconium and they experienced heavy, heavy persecution And there Paul says, you experienced some pretty heavy trials. Was that done in vain? All the things you suffered, was that done in vain? And then in verse 5, he says, he talks about, therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles. Hey, in Lystra, a man who didn't have any strength in his feet, you saw that. God healed it. That was a miracle. Didn't, Didn't you see that? Did that happen through the observing of the law or the hearing of faith? So he's making an argument. And of course, these are all rhetorical questions, aren't they? They all happen by faith. By the way, every good movement is in danger of falling prey where they resort to carnal measures hoping to achieve spiritual results. I think of movements in our present day. The church is approached by pagan practices in order to reinvigorate the people, you see the lighting of candles, Eastern type of meditation. You know, Eastern meditation is to empty your mind, right? Um, um, you're just trying to empty your mind. It is so diametrically opposed to the scripture. The scripture says we're to meditate upon God's word over and over again. But Satan's so crafty, what do you say? Empty your mind. Empty your mind. And that's crept into the church. And there's yoga, oh, Christian yoga. There's no such thing. No such thing. Or hooking up with churches that have, again, an opposed statement of faith. All under the banner of unity. Then there are those who adopt the Peter Drucker model of church management. The church looks towards the world for carnal methods to use on the church of Jesus Christ. As if Christ is not enough. Having begun in the Spirit, are you... Again, whether in your personal lives or the church, are you going to resort to the world in order to receive or achieve spiritual results? That's that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Am I going back to the world? Am I looking for ways to think that I'm going to relate better to God through the world? No. The answer is no. There's no way. The birth of the church in the book of Acts began with the promise of God pouring out His Spirit onto and into the church and has continued since then and it needs to continue if we're going to make an impact in the, this fallen world that we find ourselves living in. It needs to go all the way, all the way through to the rapture of the church. And he says, just as Abraham believed God, in verse 6, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Folks, what he's saying was, this was before Moses, this was before the law, and this was Abraham, Romans chapter 4. It was accounted to him righteous before circumcision was even given. The Judaizers no doubt challenged the Galatians that the law, note this, superseded any of the covenants God made prior to the giving of the law, and any covenant made with Abraham, the law trumped them. In other words, whatever was promised to Abraham, the law superseded. It trumped that. And Paul is going to argue this specific point. Notice verse 7. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Interesting. The Jews were literal. They were the little, little bloodline of Abraham. But those who believe are spiritual children of Abraham. Remember John the Baptist? What did he say? He said to the Pharisees and Sadducees, don't say within your heart that you have Abraham as your father. He says, I tell you the truth. God is able to raise up from these stones children unto Abraham. He said, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. He says, let's see the spiritual evidence in your life. Is it done by the works of the law? By faith. It's by faith. And Paul states, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And notice what he says in verse 8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Notice nations. Plural. Not solely Israel. Okay, They weren't exclusive. All nations. God foresaw this. And God had a plan. And he, He revealed the gospel to Abraham beforehand. And this plan involved the Gentiles. That's us. Not just the Jew. Us as well. He foresaw us. We weren't left out. We weren't excluded. And we're told in Joshua chapter 24 that Abraham and his family worshipped idols in Ur of the Chaldees. In Acts chapter 7, we find Stephen. He's about to get stoned, right? And what does Stephen say? He He tells them, the God of glory. He appeared to... Uh, Abraham in Ur of the Chaldees. Folks, Abraham was not a Jew. He may have been the first Jew, but he was not a Jew. And there was... Because why? There was no such thing. There was no such thing as a Jew. He was an idolatrous Gentile. And then something interesting happened. By His grace, Yahweh appeared to him, the one true living God. And he says, Abraham... You know what I, want you, what I want you to do? Pack your stuff. And I'm going to move you. And I'm going to lead you. And you're going to go in the direction I will show you. And he led them to the land of promise. And when he got to the land of promise, it was there where God restates His promise to him that all nations through him would be blessed through His seed. It was there when God instituted a covenant. It was there, of course, where Isaac is born. And then Jacob... Where God changes his name to what? Governed by God. Israel. And then Jacob having 12 sons. Who are the children of Israel. Children of Jacob. And this was the beginning of the Hebrew nation. We start to see that emerge. Even as they go down to Egypt. And God bringing them out. Making them into a nation. Revealing himself to them. As Yahweh. The one true living God. Abraham called. Him, or Abraham himself. Called out by God's grace. Called out. Chosen. Set aside, if you will. And he believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. (laughs) So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Notice, not to believe them, but to do them. Notice that? You're to do them. It doesn't say to believe them. You're to do them. And Paul is, is going to refer to this over and over again. He talks about the law. He says, you need to do them. You need to do them. Well, guess what? We can't do it all. And that's the point he's making. We fall short. And we break the law all the time if the law had the power to justify, then there wouldn't be a need for a sacrificial system, right? Nor would it have been given immediately after the law was given. I mean, you had the 10 commandments given and then God says, so when you break this law, here's this sacrifice. And when you break that law, you offer this sacrifice, you get this bull, you get that lamb. When you when you break this law, here's a sacrifice. So he, pres- he prescribes the sacrificial system. And why does God give us laws? Simply put, he knows us. He knows our bent. He knows our heart. When he says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he's not saying, all right, go seek out vengeance. No, he says, that's a limitation. You're only allowed to take, if he took an eye, all you're limited to is an eye. If you took a tooth, that's all you're limited to. But yet, my corrupt heart says, you know what? I want a little bit more than what he gave. I want to take a leg. I want to take an arm. He says, no, 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 no. It's a limitation. What about the law of landmarks? You ever look at that in the scripture? What does God says, you know what? Don't go remove the landmarks at night. If your neighbor has landmarks, leave them alone. Why? Because we would go out there at night, move the landmarks and make... And grab more land, wouldn't we? Because that's our heart. We're evil like that. We're terrible. The law proves over and over again that we're lawbreakers. But the fact that God has to go into specific, it proves how horrible we are. And He knows our tendencies, how horrible we can be. When God gave the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions, he starts, you shall have no other gods before me. And, you know, we sit here and we go, you know, we nod our heads and go, you know, I agree with that. Yeah, you're right. I, I can't imagine having another God before me. Um, and he says, remember the Sabbath. And, you know, and he says, honor your mother and father. Don't steal. Don't murder. And it's interesting because, you know, Paul says that. He says, you know, I kept all the commandments. I, I observed all the law. But he says, when he got to the 10th, it killed me. That one nailed me. Why? Because when we get to the 10th commandment, that shall not covet thy neighbor's wife, thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's boat, thy neighbor's job. He's talking about the inward part. When we talk about covetousness, it goes inward. That's why Paul says it killed me. Because it went right to the heart of the matter. Now you can say I've never committed adultery, but when it says that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, if you have two eyes, I think every man in here is in trouble. We all have that problem. You say, Well, I never stole a man's possessions. Or, see that dress Jane is wearing? Well, you covet. You ladies, you see a lady walk in with a new dress and shoes, you Ooh, I like that. Or a guy sees a Ferrari or a Porsche, Ooh, I I really would like that. Or you open a magazine, go to Amazon, whatever it is, we have a covetous heart. I think you get the idea. Folks, I hate to break it to you, but we break the law. If we covet, we're not fulfilling the law. Cursed is everyone who does not continue all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Notice verse 11. He says, But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In the Old Testament, if you committed a sin, deserving of death, you were stoned to death. Yet, There are are certain things that were so atrocious and so terrible. And if there was a time to demonstrate the the monstrosity of sin. After you were stoned, somebody would take your body and hang it publicly on a tree. Because you would get the idea. That's the picture of sin. And they were to take that body down at night. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus Christ became a curse for us. Indicative of all the slaughtered lambs. Remember when the worshiper came to the temple? When the worshiper came to the priest? You remember that, right? If you came in the Old Testament with that lamb, he didn't say, okay, Fernando, turn around. Let me look at your eyes. Let me look at your hands. Let me look at your throat. He, didn't, he doesn't inspect the worshiper, does he? What does he inspect? The lamb. The lamb. That's why you're there, because you're messed up. But he inspects the lamb. He doesn't inspect the, the worshiper. He examines the lamb. Remember Solomon? When he dedicated the temple, he said, Lord, Lord. If we get carried away, Lord, by our enemies because we've sinned and we look at this place, then hear our prayer. Forgive us, Lord. Restore us if we stray and we come to our senses and we look to this place, and Lord, if we marry pagan wives and we give ourselves to other nations, Lord, if we repent and we look to this place, and he says that over and over again, you know, they, they fall short, fall short, and he says, but we look at this place, look at this place. What is he saying? Was it the temple that he's concerned about? No. It was a sacrifice. It was a blood. It was a place of bloodshed. Never Jew understood that. Because he understood the sacrifice dealt with the sin issue. It was a sacrifice. Notice, God put it in one place. So ultimately, it would look toward His Son. The atoning work of His sacrifice. It was the one place God set apart in the whole world for the sinner to come and deal with his or her sin. In that one way, you and I could have fellowship again with God. Until when we sinned again and then another lamb and then another lamb. It was a place where one day just outside the temple where the son of God would spill his blood on the earth. It's interesting. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the spirit through faith. Paul is pointing back to verse 2. Where he asked, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or the hearing of faith? Now he's taking us all the way back to the promise of Abraham. And he said that the promise to Abraham was in reference to receiving the spirit. So that the blessing would come on both the Jew and Gentile. And they both would become one. And they would both become spiritually alive by the Spirit of God. God was restoring that which died in the garden with Adam. God's Spirit enters the believer. His Spirit is revived again, if you will. And He comes to life. We're born again. The promise given to Abraham has to do with the receiving of the Spirit. And through the death of Jesus Christ. And so so we read here in 14 again that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promises of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Paul now says, hey, let me illustrate this to you. Look, when your folks write a will, when your uncle Jose writes out his will and and he's gone through the whole legal process, Of legalizing it. And then your uncle dies. Guess what? That will is irrevocable. It's binding. The person who... You can no longer make any changes because that person who had control over the will has died. Now, when that will is read out loud, how many people get upset? People fight for the jewelry. That person gets the furniture... And on and on and on. People get tweaked because they, they get tweaked because why? They had plans for all the possessions this person had, right? You'd be surprised. <laughs> I, I, in my office, I've had people sit in my office. Christians. non-believers. I mean, I've had six, six brothers and sisters in my office arguing their will. The person hadn't died yet, but they were arguing. And yet, this happens all the time. People fight over a will. It's not even theirs. I've I've told my mom, I don't want anything. I want nothing. Why? I just want to be blameless. I don't want to sit there and argue. You can keep it. And why do they argue? Because they can't change the will. It's set in stone. And here he says, look, in human terms, We make a will, and once a person dies, you can no longer change it. It cannot be annulled. It is honored. It was honored in the courts then, and it's honored in the courts today. And this is something they all understood. Especially the Jew. And then he says here in in verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as many, but as one. And to your seed, who is Christ. Bear in mind, this was over 430 years before the law came by the way of Moses. God made a promise to Abraham about the blessing that would come to all men, Jew and Gentile, all the nations of the world through his seed. Through who? One of his descendants. And the Messiah was to come through his lineage. And he was going to come to bear the curse of the law. Notice verse 17. And this I say, that the law, which is 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. Remember, Paul was combating some of the arguments that Judaizers were making. And this was one of them. And Paul was saying that the law, which came 430 years later, after the promise was established in abraham and when the law that came cannot alter the promise of god <laughs> you remember what happened <laughs> god took abraham and suddenly darkness fell ar- upon him and god divided these animal parts and it says abraham fell asleep and in his dream he saw a f- great fiery burning furnace and it passed through these animal parts now, why is this significant? Because in that day, when you entered a covenant, you take the animals, you would part them in half. And whoever you're making this agreement with this covenant, this contract, you would both walk between the parted animals. That was understood in that day. Interesting way to make a covenant. but That was binding. But what happened to Abraham was he was in La La Land. He was asleep when God entered the covenant with him. And notice, it was God alone who passed through the middle of those animals. Now the covenant was based on God and not on Abraham. It's an unchanging covenant. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make. He's trying to make this point to the Galatians. And for every Jew present, they understood what Paul was talking about. Then it says in verse 18, For if... The inheritance is of the law. It is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. God gave it to Abraham by promise. They couldn't argue otherwise. And they knew it. So what was the purpose of the law? And you can see the logic that's going on here. Okay, Paul, if you're making all these arguments, then what was the purpose of the law? Good question. Let's follow the logic. Let's look at 19 and 20. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, Till, notice, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Notice that. What is the purpose of the law? And here's Paul. He's going to respond to his critics, his naysayers. These were the folks trying to get the Galatians to observe the law. And what's the purpose? It was added To make transgressions known. For example, was sin occurring before the law existed? Yes, it was. For example, was it okay for Cain to kill Abel? No, right? Sin was occurring. Now, many years ago, when uh, they were building the passenger freeway, the 110, by the way, that was the first freeway in the United States Uh, when they first built it, they decided uh, one of the things they were going to do is make the freeway windy. Do you notice that on the freeway? Well, why? Why did they make it that way? Because back then, cars only went as fast as 25 miles an hour. And they thought, you know what? It would be a boring Sunday drive if that freeway was just linear. So they purposely put turns into the freeway because they thought it would be a better experience if you were to drive it the freeway opened up july 20th 1940 with no posted speed signs since then speed signs have been posted now i've driven that freeway my whole life and i've rarely seen people observe the speed signs if the sign says 55 guess what they're doing 65 if the sign said 60 they're going 70 What if we went on to that freeway at night and removed all the speed signs? What do you think would happen? How fast do you think folks would go? Now, as soon as you transition to the next freeway, the posted speed signs would indicate to you and to me that we're what? We're breaking the law. Those signs serve a purpose. They're boundaries. But those laws indicate to you and to me, we're lawbreakers. That's what we are. The law is like a mirror, as the scripture tells us. It reveals that, hey, my face is dirty. I have food stuck between my teeth. I have gunk in my eyes. But the mirror, you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't remove the food stuck between my teeth. It doesn't remove the gunk in my eyes. It doesn't wash my face. All it does is it reveals. That's what the law does. It doesn't remove any of that stuff. The law is like a stethoscope. You know, it can reveal that I have a heart murmur an irregular heartbeat, but it doesn't remove the irregular heartbeat. That's what the law does. It was added to make transgressions known, to establish the line, if you will, that we cross. Because that's what we do. It's just within our nature. Don't touch the wet paint. What do we do? Touch the wet paint. The law was added unto one, the one who would take away our transgressions. And notice it was ordained by angels. When you read Exodus and Deuteronomy, you see the tablets that were given to Moses. It was ordained by angels by the hand of a mediator. What he was saying there is there are three parties, God, angels, and Moses. God communicated the law, transmitted it through angels, and gave it to Moses. And Moses gave it to the people. The scripture says here, now a mediator is not one. It's an individual who stands between two parties. But he said God is one in regards to Abraham. And God made the covenant. When Moses got the law, when he received the law, he was the third man down the totem pole. And when God made the covenant with Abraham, he didn't confer with angels. He didn't get a mediator. He talked to him face to face. There's a difference. When Moses received the law, it was through the angels, then to Moses. But when Abraham received the covenant, God spoke to him plainly face to face. That's how he received the promise. And this is an interesting point Paul is making. Notice here, verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. He's saying if there was a way for the law to give life and there's nothing else, then certainly this he can make the point. If there's nothing else, but there's faith. That's the point. He says, but the Scripture has confined all under sin, That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The scripture has confined all of us under sin. We're all sinners. No one is exempt except Jesus Christ. You know, in one sense, as I look at this verse, it brings me comfort, comfort. Knowing that, you know, if there's been billions and billions of people since Adam was created. Since the inception of time. That God didn't create a billion that met his standard. I'd be pretty bummed. But it says, all of us. I'm comforted by In one weird way, I'm comforted by that. I don't have to feel that I, had, I could perform better than the next person. We're all under sin. No one is above the other. We're all equals. You know, Romans tells us there is none righteous. No, not one. But before our faith came... We were kept under guard by the law. Kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Kept under the law. Means kept under military watch. Under guard. And this of course was before faith came. And he says therefore the law was our tutor. To bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come. We are no longer under a tutor. Interesting word here. Uh, pedagogos. It's an interesting word because it's in the Greek and Roman world. It was a schoolmaster. You know, we have the, our modern translation says schoolmaster, but in that world, it was a phrase coined for a trustworthy slave. If you had a kid and you you had status, you're you're well off. You have a pedagogue, and what they would do is they would chaperone your child to school, or wherever you had to go. That that person stayed lockstep with that child. Went to school, came back. School, came back. Wherever that child went, that pedagogo was there. He was a trusted slave. Until, of course, they, were, they reached the age of maturity. He was a guardian, a caretaker. He says the law was our pedagogo to bring us to Christ. The law was our guardian, if you will. It made us realize we were sinners the law said you shouldn't covet you shouldn't steal you should have no other gods before you and imagine in the old testament you know if you commit adultery that was punishable by death remember in john chapter 8 they brought this woman caught in adultery and and what do they say our law says that we should stone her right they're testing jesus well how many people today would die if that law if we said today we're going to honor that law we're going to stone every adulterer How many people would die today? You see, we're all lawbreakers. The law not only revealed that we're transgressors, but it brings us to Christ. The law is constantly revealing to us our shortcomings, that there's no way we can do it on our own. We just don't measure up. And then Jesus takes it up another notch. And he says, in relation to the law, of God. He says, if you lust in your heart, that's sexual sin. We'll say, well, it hasn't really physically happened. He says, no, no, no. If it's happened in your heart. So he takes it up another notch. It's always a heart issue. And you know, you tell that to somebody. Oh, you, well, well, you know, God made me this way. I mean, he gave me two eyes. What do you expect me to do with my eyes? Right? It's always a, resp- that's, that's a carnal response. What do I do? Well, how about this? You know, Jesus also said, you know, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it off. Well, after you've dealt with all that and you have all these cut members from your body, what are you still left with? A heart that still lusts. Because it's a heart issue. That's the problema. So the law was our guard, if you will, driving us to the one who can save us, Christ. Now, Satan would love for us to relate to God in a system of do's and don'ts. He would love for us to think that our relationship with God is measured by performance. And he loves doing this because we will always have this sense that we all fall short of what pleases God. He loves that. He loves us to think that way. That, you know what, I just can't do it. I can't do it. And we can not do it. That's the whole point. We, but he would love for us to stay there. And we see many examples of this in our own society. Why? Because we're a performance-driven society. And yet God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the most precious possession I have. I'm going to give it to you. Well, what's it cost? I'm giving it to you for free. I'm giving you my son. Yeah, right, Fernando. I mean, nothing's for free, right? Well, let's put that into context. Here's a picture. You're the criminal. You've broken the law. You deserve judgment. And God comes along. The one who has the power to judge you. And he says, here's my son, Christ. And he's going to remove all your sin. All your guilt. But the only thing you have to do is not do anything. Just receive him. So what, wait a minute. That sounds confusing. The only thing you have to, you don't have to do anything. That's where it sounds kind of, there's a play on words. You don't have to do anything, but you do have to do one thing. And that's belief. Because we don't measure up. We fall short. I can keep trying and trying and trying. I can never please God because I fall short. I break his law. I often think of this. It's like Christmas, right? I hate using the term Christmas for this illustration, but I'll use it so you understand. But it's like Christmas time. Here we are, we have gifts, and and I come up to you and I I, I present to you a gift. You say, oh, that's nice. Now, did you have to do anything to earn that gift? No, it's a gift, right? You don't have to work for it. You don't have to perform for it. I'm giving you the gift. Why? Because I love you. But it's not a gift. Why? Why? It's not a gift until you actually receive it. Because if you never receive it, would you receive? I've never received anything. Right. It's not a gift. It's a gift. It's a legitimate gift when you actually receive it. And that's what the scripture is trying to tell us here. It's by faith. God has this great gift, the son of God. And he says, he's yours for the taking. And it's free because I love you. But the only way it becomes a gift is you receive him. Man, what a message. What a plan that God says, I love you so much. I give you my son. I want you in heaven. You know, I shared with the kids at kids camp. Here's the crazy thing. Here's the God of heaven. He lives in heaven. You know, I asked the kids, okay, kids, how many of you want to go to hell? It's funny because a couple kids kind of, one kid shot up his hand up, didn't understand the question, but he thought the question is going to be, how many want to go to heaven? And he quickly put his hand down and said, why don't you want to go to hell? Because immediately in your mind, you begin to think it's a place of torment. It's a place that's burning, suffering. Well, how many of you want to go to heaven? Well, guess what? Every hand went up. Why? It's a place of paradise. A place that we can't even imagine, right? God's there. God lives there. And we look at the universe and we, we get blown away, right? This is, I mean, we can look at the stars and, and you know, different planets. And we go, man, it's amazing. God's creation. But heaven, we have no concept. And yet God says, not only do I want to just vacate heaven, so to speak, He says, when you accept my Son, I live in you. That's heaven for Him. is that crazy? Especially when he knows everything about me. And I've said this often the worst person you'll ever meet in your life is you. The worst person I ever met in my life is me. And yet he says, I, I want to step down in heaven and I want to live in you. That's his plan. And we can't do that by by doing. It has to be faith. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you again for just this epistle. Lord, that we don't have to abide by the set of rules and feel that we have have to do these things in order to relate to You. But Lord, You tell us that all we have to do is walk in faith, trusting in You. And if there's anybody here tonight that doesn't know Christ, you can tonight. I'm not going to make you stand up. I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but you're there. And if that's something you want to do, you believe that Christ died for your sins, all you have to do is is pray a simple prayer and I'll lead you in that prayer. And all you have to say is, Lord, I come to you in Jesus' name. I believe your Son died for me and died for my sins. I want to accept you as my Lord and my Savior. That you'd lead me, Lord, all the days of my life.